Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. Something else I really liked about Michael was he was impartial politically. Um, at least whenever it came to the podcast, he admitted to not being a fan of Donald Trump, um, to not liking his politics or whatever, but he was able to dissect the issue without politics. And I thought that that was such a breath of fresh air to see because now it seems like we just pull politics into everything. And I think yes. kind of, we, we were talking beforehand about ranked choice voting. I love ranked choice voting as a concept. I think it's great. But what happens or what I think happens is you tie the idea of ranked choice voting with a political party, doesn't matter which one, and immediately half the country hates it. Yes, that's definitely been the trend the last 10 years. But it it is kind of funny, like, um, you know, as I was saying uh, before this, I was uh, I have a degree in political science, first of all, that was um, and I was following ranked choice voting since I was, you know, getting my B.A., you know, get my you know, third year poli sci degree reading about it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's awesome. Like there's there's actual solutions to the problems we have in America. Like so many people there, they have this vague idea that I think having only two parties is a problem. Most people on some level seem to agree on that concept. But a lot of people, they think it's a philosophical thing. Like, oh, we Americans, we're so stupid. We just can't think of more than two sides of any issue. That's not what causes it. There is a mechanical cause for us having only two parties in America. The actual way you count the votes inevitably results in only two parties. There are like math geeks who like wrote dissertations mathematically proving this. There's math involved. You know, there's, and if you look at countries, in the world that have democracy, that have more than two parties, and there's a lot of them, they all use some different system of counting the votes because they understand the system does affect the outcome. Uh, So, I mean, I could go down that rabbit hole uh, as much as you wanted, although uh, if you'll let me, uh, I'll plug something that I'm totally unrelated to. I've I've never even met this guy, but um, CPG Gray on YouTube. He has this great YouTube video called Politics in the Animal Kingdom in which he graphically represents how the different election systems affect the different results. So he has one for the system we have now, explaining why it's so terrible. And then he's like saying, you know, like, you know, the monkey votes for the monkey candidate and the zebra votes for the zebra candidate. But, you know, you know to break it down, you know, apolitically. And then, uh, then he says, but let's see what happens if they voted in this other system. And so he does it for ranked choice voting. He does it for some of the other options that other countries have. You know, and I was like, my God, I wasted $70,000 of my dad's money learning this in college because he narrowed it down to like a 10 minute video for children. It actually works. Um, So anyway, the system causes the two party system. It's not a philosophical thing. And ranked choice voting does have some ability to get different results. Now, I, I, I could tell you some hilarious stories about the inner workings of the election reform activist community. Like I went to a big um, convention 
in New Orleans one time and like, you know, we we're all getting drunk together and screaming about why one system was better than the other. Like the election nerds are hardcore nerds. They <laughs> So there, there will be people who hate ranked choice voting amongst them, but it has momentum in America. So it's good enough for me. And um, which is to get around about what the point I was originally making is that if you look at states that Democrats dominate, in those states, Republicans love ranked choice voting because it gives the smaller party more of a chance to win elections. It's very fickle which area of the country and which decade. You give it 10 years and another party gets a majority in a state and suddenly the minority party decides maybe ranked choice voting isn't all that bad because it gives more representation or at least more chance to the parties that are not necessarily winning the election under the system we have now. Um, I'd see that as a good thing because there's at least some chance in any given situation you can form an alliance with one of the major parties. You can get the libertarians and the greens and all of the just unrepresented people to form an alliance with the one party that is out of power and then they might have enough votes to pass it. And I'd argue that's kind of what happened in Remain, for example. Uh, it is unfortunate, though, that all the recent victories have been from progressive-leaning groups, so it's beginning to be tagged as just a progressive issue. I, I think that's a shame. There, there are some areas where it would benefit Republicans, where Republicans have shown interest in it, you know, five years ago, but it's becoming, you know, associated culturally. And I hope we can undo that. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't know. I, I do hear a lot of people saying, I want more than two parties. I want more than two mm -hmm. parties. But I think more than that, I hear people saying, like, what the fuck is up with these candidates? Mm -hmm. Like, they all they all have on diapers or yeah. they're like complete sacks of shit. They're, they're like, pathetic. Where, yeah. Well, so it's like, I don't care if we have one party. Like, as long as they're, well, I don't they're agree decent. with that. I don't agree <laughs> <Yeah>. with that. <laughs> um, as long as we have some decent candidates, like Ben, I would vote for you over Trump mm -hmm. or Biden. Right. And I think most people would vote for most people they know over Trump or Biden or Hillary Clinton. I will throw her in there because as much as I don't want to turn off groups in particular, having gone through years of the Democratic Party working for the various candidates, Hillary Clinton was awful. <laughs> like she was a uniquely awful candidate. She was awful at being a candidate. Like if you want to argue that you've seen into her soul and you can tell she was a good person who meant well, fine. But she she was not good at the actual skill of running for office. And the Democrats need to admit that if they ever want to get any better. So I don't, you know, we had two elections in a row, I thought, which was Clinton and Trump, where both candidates were awful. And then Biden and Trump, where both candidates were awful. And it's surreal. It's surreal how awful those people were, how like just fundamentally unlikable both options were. It, it's um, it blows my mind. Like, how does, I was that, forced... how does that happen? Could, could you explain to me how this happens technically? Oh, man. I mean, I, disclaimers now. I'm I'm wading off into the area where I'm just kind of speculating and guessing. I don't feel confident because this doesn't fit the way I thought the world worked. Like when I came up, when I was, I can remember the Bill Clinton era. I was younger, but I can remember that. I can remember being involved in politics, first trying to stop George W. Bush, then trying to, to help uh, Barack Obama. I thought I understood some fundamental truths about the about the system, but seeing two candidates who were both so awful 
I, it, it blew my mind. It was like, I must be missing something here. I've, I've, I haven't fully recovered since that. Um, I argue that it, it has to do with corruption. It has to do with a system no longer promoting people based on merit. You know, they, you get 20 years in which there's just no possibility of working your way up the ladder. And again, I'm biased here because I was trying to work my way up the ladder during that time period. <laughs> um, and, but like, I just, I got the general sense that people were promoted first based on just loyalty. There's a, like a lot of paranoia, like the more you sucked up to the boss, the more likely you were to get promoted. And then, you know, I, I got, I okay. I got the sense. I'm gonna detour a little bit and then sure. circle back to that. I did change my model of understanding how American government and politics works dramatically when Bernie Sanders was debating Hillary Clinton. Uh, and Bernie's not perfect. Certainly, they all will break your heart eventually. But he said something when he was talking to Hillary Clinton, where he was like saying, "You know, you took." million dollar speaking fees mm. to speak for 30 minutes at a bank. You talk to them for 30 minutes during lunch and they paid you a million dollars. And you really expect the voters to believe that doesn't affect anything like th that, that doesn't impact your decision on some subconscious level. You know, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but like that was, I think Bernie was never forgiven by the political establishment for saying that because that's a bubble bursting moment. And that just like, I was like, Oh my God, you know, like, like, cause even when I was getting my degree in political science, we'd have these long conversations where people would kind of laugh embarrassedly, like the professor, you know, where you talk about campaign finance, you're like, wait, like there, there's all of these corporations that give a million dollars every election and they give to both candidates. They're not even backing one side or another. They just out of habit, pay a million dollars to both sides every time. Isn't that important? <laughs> and like, like the professors would never have an answer for that that I could recall. And burnt this it finally clicked into place. I'm like, okay, this is what really happens. The government has control of billions, trillions of taxpayer dollars every year. They can legally just vacuum up instant money, guaranteed money, you know, not dependent on anything. They always get the tax money. And then they have to spend it all by the end of every year or they won't get as much in next year's budget. So they have this huge motivation to spend the money. So you have all of these companies that take the government contracts. They get the, you know, the Congress decides what companies get those billions of dollars and the companies. And, you know, again, speculation, you know, don't sue me for saying this, Hillary Clinton. I'm not, I can't prove it. I'm just I think this is how it really works. The companies, they just kind of roll up and they wink and without actually saying it out loud, they say, look, you give me a billion dollar contract of taxpayer money and I'll take a million dollars out of it and I'll give it back to you. And that's the main thing government does, at least Congress. Like that's all they really care about when they're running for office and they're campaigning. They want to be in the majority so they control who gets the government contracts so they get the better bribes. 
It's all bribe. And they, they've come up with a system where it's legalized bribery. It's not even illegal. Like so long as they don't explicitly say it, you know, they just kind of wink, but the money changes hands every time. The, the engine keeps turning. And that's all they really care about. Like these things they give speeches about, these various social issues that are designed to get people angry. They don't care. You know, that's just a distraction. Like they'll use abortion one year. They'll use transsexuals the next year. They don't care. They just want people to get angry and distracted so they don't notice all of the money being funneled in this overtly corrupt way. So anyway, that's, that's I think, my new underlying model. And that could explain why we're getting such bad candidates now because it, the only thing they care about is, is the money, is the relationships with the corporations that give donations in order to get government contracts later. Everyone knows about the donations they give. Everyone forgets to talk about the government contracts they get. That's a very important part of the equation. And so, like, the, you know, people will just rise through the ranks because they're sort of a chosen by whoever who's like, oh, this person really plays ball, you know. Yeah. And they'll just do these very superficial analysis. They're like, okay, well, let's see if you can get, you know, a candidate from an identity group that's, that's really hot this year. But so just as so long as they're still corrupt, but we'll, we'll put a little paint of veneer on it. This is my like Kamala Harris model, you know, like for, to the executives, she looked great. She's like, wow, she's a woman and she's black. I mean, technically she's half Jamaican, half Indian, but like they don't, they don't care about the difference of that, you know, uh, you know, people will love that. Those are hot this year. And they, like, they never, they never checked their like personality, their actual like political skills, like the ability to just like work voters at the local level and persuade people to vote for them. They don't, they don't have that. They just, coast higher and higher up because there's just this sense that they might might be a good good uh, representative in that way for the corporate interests and i think that very much explains hillary clinton i think that's for you know 20 years people were operating on that model they were like you know here's a group of people who were running the country for eight years during bill clinton's presidency who, who you know i don't think is a good person but he had charisma you know yeah. he could move a crowd and then when those people were out of power, they're like, well, we need to win another election to get back in power, get our group of buddies and business interests set up. It's a finely old machine. We already did it for eight years. We, we just want to get back. Let's just run his wife. Then it'll be progressive because she's also a woman, you know. So they spent, I don't know how long it was, you know, 20 years trying to turn her into some sort of like feminist icon, but she never had charisma. She was never a good person to be the leader of a movement. She was just connected. So they tried to push her in. Um, I think Trump can be understood as people's just gut level rejection of that. Like I, whatever hatred you have for Trump, I do get it. I get what people like about him. Like people have a vague sense that there's bullshit going on. And he's calling bullshit. Now, I mean, if you happen to have an understanding of a lot of history and issues, it's pretty easy to catch him lying. Like, But if um, people are really thirsty for someone to just call bullshit, they're so desperate on, on the whole system. And he did that. So I, I think that, in a nutshell, explains why he's so popular. Uh, he's also um, – but, like, he's – I think – okay, let me put it this way. 
explaining Trump can be explained by the rest of the Republican establishment following the same pattern that I described, because it, it works in both parties with, you know, getting more corrupt and getting more detached from how to reach people. And everyone else was so bad, Trump just seemed like a better comparison. I don't think it's really true that Trump was terribly good. I look at the Trump years as proof of how bad everything else had got. And so people were desperate for something, anything that was some new option. Um, then Biden, I, I think... Um, it was a similar thing, like, you know, again, totally wild speculation here. Like, if we talk about January 6th, I can actually vouch for things I witnessed. I can be a legit expert on those things. This year, just asking me opinions. Uh, but to explain Biden, I'd say, again, pretty similar thing. Everyone else in the field was so awful. So, like, Kamala Harris, you know, like, Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton are very similar. They they just, they, they can't move a crowd to save their life. They just keep getting inexplicably promoted anyway. Um, probably because, you know, they're women and Kamala Harris is even a black woman. And they're like, well, we need a woman, but we can't have any of these women over here who might say controversial things that our financial backers don't want to hear. Let's, let's get this really, you know, corrupt woman who we know will play ball. That's, you know, my, the way I interpret that, as, as spending like 20 years as a loyal Democrat, all like the haters out there, like, you know, I'm not saying this is a Republican sense. I, I, I don't like the Republicans. This is the de criticism I came up with the Democrats from the inside. Anyway, so they were all like that. And there were a few other candidates who were exciting people at different points, whose ideas were so new and radical you know, and critical of the rich and powerful that the rich and powerful vetoed them. So you had your Bernie Sanders, but you also had like uh, Andrew Yang, who like mm -hmm. talked about ranked choice voting a lot, by the way, who he raised $10 million. You know, he was running number five or six at one point. Like he was, you know, fairly high up. He was higher than Kamala Harris was. Um but like he was ignored, he was barred from some of the debates, you know, the media didn't take him seriously because his ideas would have cost money to the companies to get corporate money and government contracts. And um, th there was, how, there was, how does that happen? Like just the logistics, because, because mm. I think everybody kind of agrees with you. So let, let's just take Andrew Yang, for example. So he's mm -hmm. throwing out some crazy wild ideas. Um, some of them, Maybe good, some of them bad. I, I don't know. Uh, but you're saying it would have cost the corporations money, so he has to go. Right. How how do we make him go? Disappear okay. or whatever. Well, just dis disclaimers again, because like I try to view myself primarily in the lens that I taught my students when I was a history teacher, which is, you know, you have to verify your sources of information. You have to know how reliable things are. What I'm doing now... Yes, what I'm doing now could at best be called inductive reasoning, uh, which is gathering huge amounts of data points and then studying them to see if you find patterns. And sometimes in life, that's all you have. Sometimes you're not in a position to do like a really scientifically vigorous deductive analysis of things. You know, you just have to. And that is what a lot of history is. But you can't trust these conclusions with your life. You know, this is not like when I tell, you know, cause like, you know, that picture behind me, like I took that picture myself when flashbangs were going off at the Capitol on January 6th. I am a hundred percent sure that happened. I can vouch for that. These other speculations of what happens behind closed doors. I have not been behind those closed doors. I, I am not a witness of those things, but 
I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot. I'll take a shot. So one thing I often use to start when I have this conversation is think of it as a death by a thousand cuts. It, it, there's not a single sudden move that is made to, you know, tamp someone down. That would attract too much attention to stamp them down. Uh, it, it's a lot of little things, but the DNC is often one of the easiest things to track. The DNC would be the Democratic National Committee, who do not have as much power as a lot of people assume they do, but they are the closest they have to a central federal democratic apparatus. They will host the debates, and they have this really weird, ever-changing system of rules for the debates to influence the outcome, to influence who's allowed to talk and when. Like, um, for, exa- like they, for example, this time, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, another candidate who uh, was not popular with the mainstream media, she most famously told off Kamala Harris, and then Kamala Harris dropped out Like shortly after. It was perceived that like, Tulsi threw her out of the race. Fair or not, that was the perception with the strength of her beatdown. But so um, they, and, and you know, people feel free to Google, I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head. But um, they changed the rules so that she did not qualify for one of the debates. Uh, you know, like the week before, they were like, well, you have to have poll numbers that are so high and or have raised this amount of money by this date in order to get to the debate. And then she wasn't there. But then, and I, I, I will kill myself if I'm messing up this story. I wish I was one of those people who had perfect recall. But then it, it, it was Bloomberg, the billionaire, you know, he decided nobody's catching fire that we want to win. You know, we were hoping that uh, maybe Harris would catch fire or one of the other 10 candidates who we were all vouched for and we're sure it's fine. Whichever one of them wins is fine. But there's these unacceptable candidates like Bernie or Yang or Tulsi Gabbard who can't be allowed to win. Um, So Bloomberg jumped in at the last minute, like middle of the race. You know, it was I think it was clear that none of the mainstream candidates were going to win. So he was like, I'll bet people would be excited about me. So he spent God knows how much money. Like there were ads on every TV screen. Every time I went to the gym, it was like, I felt very Orwellian, very like, you know, yes. and you know, I was extremely proud of the American people, particularly the democratic primary voters. Cause they didn't fall for it. Like Bloomberg didn't become popular either, but here's the point I'm setting up. The DNC changed the rules again to allow Bloomberg into the debates, like right away because they wanted him in. And um, like, had they used those same rules a few months earlier, Tulsi, or it might've been another candidate. I I will wedge that. Definitely one candidate did this, would have qualified for the debates, one of those unacceptable candidates, you know, but they kept changing the rules back and forth to make sure, okay, one set of rules to get this guy out. And then, oh, Bloomberg wants in. Okay, we'll, we'll get rid of that set of rules. We just got in and put another set of rules to get Bloomberg in. Yeah. And so, like, if you're watching closely, you can notice little indicators like that. Like, you know, if I notice that pattern and I'm just a guy sitting on, you know, in my house, you know, who who doesn't have special access, who just has a reasonable understanding of how that culture works, because having been, you know, an intern for a little while, if I can notice a detail like that, how many other details similar to that are there that I don't see because I don't have access to? So it's a lot of a lot of little tricks like that, I think. Um, and it also the, the media, I've been very disappointed in the media in the last 10 years. I used to feel 
even if they weren't fair, they did a better job of lying and pretending they were fair. Um, and now they just very explicitly, they don't, it's not even that they back a single candidate. It's that they back a, a party rather. It's that they back which candidates within the party. You know, so they'll give way more time to one candidate that they obviously like or that they just think will boost ratings. That certainly was a factor with Trump. And they'll completely ignore a candidate that they don't like, even if that person has very high polling numbers and has every indication that Americans care about them. And that's that's what I thought happened to uh, Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang, you know, a lot of people like that. Um, to, in an attempt to be fair, I'll point out uh, Ron Paul a few years back. I think he was a conservative. They did the same thing, too. So it's not that they hate liberals. It's that they hate people who would upset the status quo and the giant companies that pay them all the money. So, so anyway, if, oh. if I'm Chase, if I'm Chase Bank mm -hmm. um, and Andrew Yang is trying to regulate banks and mm -hmm. it's going to it's going to cost me money. Mm -hmm. I don't all I have to do. I go to the DNC um, and I say, hey, you know, this Yang guy is a problem. You know, here's some money or something like that. I go to CNN MSNBC, and I say, "Hey, right. this Yang guy." I, he's can I jump in here? Because uh, I think there's something that you know people will invariably say in the comments or something. The moment you said that, that's a triggering response. What you just described is still legal. There is a law against that. Like that, that is legally a bribe. So if I give you money, and then I say, "Hey, this money is to do this specific thing," that is illegal. But if I give you money, and I just smile mysteriously and don't say what, <laughs> and you have to guess why I gave it, that's legal. So that's the system we have, mostly, I think. Or may maybe uh, opposite thing is if I'm Chase Bank and I say, yeah, you know, we give a million bucks to the DNC every year. Mm -hmm. You know, this Yang guy's running. I don't, I don't, I don't know if we're going to give a million bucks this year. Again, I think that's the type of thing that if I had like a secret recording of it, I could charge you with a crime. I think they usually don't bother. I think usually what happens is they every year they pick a few like people to make an example of. So it, it takes a difference of a slight reframing of the way most people think about it. Think about it this way. It's normal for you to be running for Congress and to get a million dollars from Chase Bank. It happens every year and everyone else gets the million dollars every year. That's your world. But one guy whose office is down the hall from you, he didn't get the million dollars. Oh, no. Why not? What did he do? How did he mess up and not get the million dollars? I'd better study him to make sure I don't make his mistake. I think it's a little that's like the slightly more subtle way that thriving works nowadays. Great point, dude. Um, oh, my God. Yes, this is you have brilliant perspective. This is great. Um, what? So I back to what you were saying earlier, I think everybody and, and I know, like you said, we're just speculating. We're shooting the shit. Mm -hmm. Two guys. Listen, I work a full time job. I don't have time to research every opinion I have. I'm probably wrong. Yeah, nobody does. That's uh, reasonable. And, but I think a lot of people that I talk to feel what you were saying is that a lot of politicians maybe are not representing the needs of people and they're representing some other needs. A lot Indeed. of people that I talk to are getting this. And something else that I've noticed too is there seems to be, shit, I, I hate this word, but culture war. Oh boy, mm -hmm. I, I hate the culture war word. 
But it seems to be, we seem to get dragged into small um, debates that inflame large amounts of people over things that don't really affect lives. So now, okay, we're sending money to Ukraine. Oh boy, this is, you, you hate it or you love it. Oh, trans rights. Oh boy, listen, they don't deserve, they shouldn't get married, they should. Um, you know, border security. And this inflamed stuff whenever I feel like as Americans, we all kind of agree on the same things, which is we want to be safe. We want to have great education. We want to have affordable health care and we want to have access to a good job and less poor people. I think we can everybody agrees on that. But in your opinion, and it's just an opinion, why do we seem to get dragged down in these other issues that maybe don't matter as much. Uh, I, I I would love to answer that before I do. Cause again, like um, a lot of people hate me. So I'm just kind of always anticipating the lines of attack people will have against. Me. I love you. Yeah. I will just say that um, when I was talking about bribery and I was saying, if I just hand you the money and smile mysteriously, that that's a metaphor. There's a few different ways money is actually delivered. Like uh, there's campaign donations, which are very easy to do. And then there's speaking fees, which are very easy to do. Both of those are legal ways to launder money. I'd say I paid you a million dollars to talk at my lunch rather than just me handing you the million dollars and smiling. And there's other ways they move the money. So I just kind of want to epilogue or like the notes at the end, which I try to include in my book as many sources as I can to, to clarify the specifics of that. Now, getting on, uh, I absolutely, the reason people hate each other, well, Definitely, there is an element of technology involved. I think social media is um, social media created this economy we'd never seen before, where you could make money as a business or as a personality, celebrity type, just by getting people to click on something on their phone or computer. They didn't actually have to buy anything. You know, all they do is the clicks, and eventually, you as the content creator. And, uh, will make money by, you know, if you have enough followers, that turns into money in a bunch of ways, advertising, whatever. So that really changed the equation. Just the goal success was just getting people to click and share. And it turns out that people click and share things that make them angry more easily than things that make them happy. That's a great point. So, so it did, and that did, I think there's an argument to be made that that developed somewhat organically. Um, you know, not necessarily like an evil genius planning that in advance. That ju that just turned out to be the way to make money in the new system, and people had this motive to act that way. And so we do get more people now who are exposed to that. That that's definitely an element of this. But even if a system arose without intention. Once you understand that the system exists, like the, the shape of the system does affect the outcome. It's the same concept as how the type of elections you have will affect the outcome. So like we could modify things like, you know, the social media system, if someone would step up and be in charge, which is often scary in itself, to not get that result as much. Having said that, I absolutely think it is deliberate that people are constantly divided against each other hating each other. I think it has been that way forever. 
I think the people in power, well, not forever, since at least maybe the French Revolution, you know, since it became clear that it was possible for the poor oppressed people to get so angry, they just cut off the heads of the leaders. You know, I think since that time, powerful people have been like, oh, we better give them someone else to be angry at. I think that's kind of the guiding principle of the, the ruling class is make sure that the people who we rule and oppress are always mad at someone. And it's always not their rulers. Wow. Uh, I think there's a million ways. I just think there's an obvious motivation to do that. Like as someone who, like me who loves history, who will read what has happened to the ruling class of previous generations. It's just it's almost hilarious if it wasn't frightening that I live in this time where people will universally acknowledge it. Uh, I apologize. As I said off screen, I've, I've got the cat in here because she'll make more noise if she's outside. She just <laughs> scratched herself and hurt herself and hissed at me. Uh, that was the order <laughs> of events. Uh, anyway, what was I saying? Um, yeah, they, I, I, I like how independent they are, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, what was I saying? Okay, so yeah, you look, you look at history. Here's what I say. And, and I can, I love the Romans. So I'll, I'll go back, you know, like, oh, in the Roman ruling class, people act this way and they were basically horrible and self-serving. And, you know, they were the people in power because they were willing to kill and lie and steal to get in power. And then the people who were willing to kill and lie and steal got into power in France and England in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. And all this time, the people in power were the people who wanted it most. The people who were willing to kill were get it. But magically in our period, they're wonderful. Magically, we've got a ruling class that are just awesome, great people, not psychopaths at all, like the ruling class usually is, you know, and it's silly. Like, of, of course, they're like as selfish as every other set of rulers have generally been like, you know, it's just we live in a lot of propaganda that paints a slightly different picture. You know, and I'm starting to veer off into like the territory that sounds a little like conspiracy theory, quote unquote, um, because I'll meet people who will say the kinds of things I said, you know, I'm having a great conversation with us. And then they're like, so you, do you know about the lizard people? <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's a dangerous bridge you can fall off of. Once you start questioning the official story, you got to make sure that you don't automatically believe anything else that's counter to the official story. You got to, you got to keep in your head kind of what we were saying, like, what am I sure of? And what can I just suspect? But I suspect that the world works the way I just talked about. Okay. okay. Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. I have deduced. And by the way, I, I have no evidence either. Mm -hmm. But I've come to the conclusion, the mm -hmm. exact same one that you came to. So it just feels like you have, we'll call it, we'll call it a ruling class, uh, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word. And they are fucking everybody. And it's mm -hmm. like, and the ruling class is like, oh man, hey, hey, Ben, you know, we're fucking all of these people. Like, aren't they going to come after us? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh man, we don't want that because there's a lot more of them than there are of us. So man, shit, what are we going to do? And it's like, oh, I know. We'll get them to fight each other about all kind of shit. And, you know, we'll hire some smart people to come up with some good shit that'll really piss them off. Right. Mm -hmm. And we'll just say and so we'll say, hey, listen, um, yeah, man, yeah, uh, poor people or non ruling class people. 
yeah, you know, they got all these people crossing the border and they're taking your jobs. Like, how do you feel about that? Like, doesn't that they're taking your job? You're going to let these guys take food off of your table? Like, are you okay with that? And then the other, they'll two sides it. They'll say, hey, man, these people are not taking your job. What are you talking about? They're coming over here to feed their family just like you. We need to accept these people. Oh, my. Are you going to let this other group of people do that to you? And then the ruling class, they just stand back and watch the cockfight. Right. And that is brilliant. And like I said, I have no evidence to support this, but I believe that that's. You, you have some sense. evidence. You, you, don't, you don't have a conclusive level of evidence, but you have some evidence, like enough to form a reasonable, uh, you know, educated guess. Yeah. You, you just you, you haven't uh, you don't have conclusive proof. But that, like that's often like because like. In in like chemistry, you can conclusively prove a principle, you know, yeah. in history. You just you often can't like you can't perform a scientific experiment on history and play it out the same way three times and be sure of your results. You, you just you, you look at the patterns and you make your best guess. And you, you always have to have some level of humility because it's not an exact science the way that chemistry or math is. But there are good and bad ways to do it. You know, like as a history teacher, I, I kind of fell in love with this worldview of like measuring the amount of certainty you had over something. You know, like again, like that picture there, I have very high level of certainty. I'm an eyewitness that I have primary source documentation of that. This other stuff, I don't have no evidence. It's just not as strong. It's not as conclusive. A hundred percent. Just like, for example, if I dropped a million bucks in Times Square right now and no cops mm -hmm. were involved. Mm -hmm. I would bet all of my money that that million dollars will be gone tomorrow. I have oh, no sure. proof. Yeah. I have no proof. I have no evidence that it'll be gone. But listen, we know people. Um, I, I want to get to the reason <laughs> we went on such a tangent. Whatever, awesome. man. I don't mind. I, I want to get got, to the. To I got the, the rest reason. of my day for you. Same here, dude. It's a Friday night. You know, I may mm -hmm. get a glass of doggone wine. Um, the reason that you are so cool, besides all of your opinions you've already shared, which is. You were you had boots on the ground. Your boots were on the ground for January 6th at the Capitol when the Capitol was breached. You wrote you interviewed people. You wrote a book called Sorry, Guys, We Stormed the Capitol. It's a great title. Thank by you. The, way, so the real why, quote. Someone actually said that to me. Holy shit. So someone who was on the ground. Yeah, I, I didn't say that. Like that was how I first knew that it happened because I, I had just been writing a general book about that election season. And so I was already interviewing people that day. And in the middle of an interview, like the person I'm interviewing says, yeah, sorry, guys, we stormed the Capitol. And I'm like, well, holy shit. And so like, I just kind of take off running in that direction. That was, that was my first news that it was going on. Um, yeah. Cause I didn't, cause that, that's what I do. I try to document events that might be interesting to history classes of the future. It's a lot of guesswork. So is, is is that why you were on the ground that 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 day? You you're not a proud boy. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm I I am not affiliated with any of those people, uh, one way or another. Although I met people on both sides, I had interviews with you know a lot of them. I had interviews that you know have yet to be published. That you know maybe when I get my podcast running. 
But I, I, I'm the founder of what I call the Chasing History Project. It was, I, I was a history teacher, uh, and right around COVID, I decided to take a break from that and focus on my lifelong dream of being an author, something I'd always wanted to do before, uh, and mix it with my strange obsession with Jack Kerouac-esque adventuring. Um, I have a strange list of influences. Um, so uh, my idea was that um, I would write something about the tumultuous times I lived in that met the rigorous standards to be considered a primary source document and could actually be just given to 17-year-old high school students in history class. Um, but at the same time, it's actually, like, good. Like, it's like an exciting book that, like, the 17-year-olds will want to read about, you know. And and I, I had assigned and thought about a few books like that. There's a small pantheon of, like, great books of just people who wrote primary source historical documents. They were eyewitness to historically important events, and they're also good writers. And it's this, like, wonderful conflagration of that. And uh, so I tried to seek out, like, social unrest. I tried to, like, the types of things that the media was arguing about. Like, was it a riot or was it a mostly peaceful protest? Like, I wanted to go and find out for myself and either actually witness things myself or interview the actual witnesses and capture all that data and hope that in 20 years from now, it might be useful to some history teacher who had been thinking the things I had been thinking at the time. Uh, almost like like almost like cheating. Like I try to imagine, my, my point of view is, and I, and I don't, I haven't talked to anyone else who has quite this perspective on being an author. My point of view is I'm, I'm a kid reading a book in history class and I get to a point and, and like, I, I raise my hand and I ask a question like, wait, why did they do that? And I try to be that kid and at, actually ask the person that so the kid can know that someday. Um, so, yeah, so that was that was the rough framework of my adventurous lifestyle. I did an entire book about um, when the protesters took over uh, several blocks of Seattle for a, a total of about three weeks, if you remember that, they called it the Chaz, and they changed the name to the Chop. And after that was that, I mean, that ended with me escaping a gunfight. That was wild. What, what uh, happened? Tell, tell the story about that. That that sounds crazy. I, I I had no clue you were there. Yeah. Yeah. The the news coverage was like it was like a vigilante war zone. I, I don't. What was it really like? Oh. Uh, that's a complicated question. Uh, it, it's an, it's it, I actually see it as an interesting parallel to January 6th because there were some similarities between the two events and some differences. But one of the similarities, there's definitely like the zones where there was totally different vibes. Um, but um, there was definitely some violence there. Without question, there was some, as well as some very, you know, idealistic people. Um, but if, I mean, I don't want to be a jerk. So if, if, if you really want to, you can, but my preference would be to leave that as a tease so that maybe, I don't know, in a, later this year, when I finally get that book out, then I can go into that one in more detail. That was not published at this time. I finished the first draft and then I just I had this intuition, like all the different news stories about social unrest, about the election. And I was like, I want to interview the MAGA rallies. I want to go to the MAGA rallies and see what's really happening there 
and they're going to be gone very soon. You know, this, this is my chance, you know? Yeah. And so I got a van and I just kind of left that book half finished, you know, manuscript finished, but unpublished. And I bought a van and I drove up and down the East coast. Like I was like a concert groupie, just following every Trump rally uh, and interviewing people at every rally. And I managed to even attend um, some BLM rallies and some, I, I, I snuck into a Biden event. Like I, like I got a tip where it was going to be and I parked my vehicle behind the security line. I'm probably committed. Oh, yeah. And I was, um, but then I, I didn't really get much usable out of that because security was so tight. Like they, like eventually like a guy noticed me and he's like, I don't know how you got here. But if you go back to your car and sit there, like you can go home. <laughs> so I didn't. I, but um, the point was, I, I I try to document the time period I live in. That that's the principle that I try to follow with the Chasing History Project. And so I was writing just a generalized book about the types of conversations I had with people at that time, mostly the MAGA rallies, some BLM and Biden. And then in the middle of a normal day for me of interviewing people at a Trump event, they stormed the Capitol. And so instantly I was like, well, this is the book. Like, obviously, you know, so I, that's the material I gathered about that would became the basis of that book. But I have a lot of other interviews that maybe someday will be useful. Uh, so anyway, that's why I was there. Whoa, that's crazy. So you had no inclination that this was about to pop off or whatever. You're just there documenting cool stuff. What was <clears throat> what was the general vibe like on the ground? Did you feel in danger? Did were people pissed off? Was it just a normal MAGA rally? That's a great question. First, I will say I did have an intuitive sense that maybe somewhere in that month or so period some sort of social pressure was going to break. I was, I was, that was part of what I was doing. Like I call it the chasing history project because like a lot of times I'll hear that there's a riot in a city and you know, like any sane person does, I hop in my car and drive towards the riot as fast as I can. <laughs> and then it ends before I get there. And I'm actually disappointed by that. And, and I had this sense that maybe there was going to be some political related violence comparable to what was happening in, in some parts of Seattle. Um, and I could capture it. Um, I didn't at all anticipate the day or the way it would happen. But when it did happen, I kind of like, oh, that's that thing that, I, you know, I had I did have a rough theory that there might be something like that. Um, OK, well, here's what I'll, I'll try to give you the which basically the short version of the book, because the book is the whole day. It's just a history of the day from beginning to end. A lot of it's my personal narrative based on my the notes I was taking as it was going, as well as the pictures and uh, audio recordings I made. I make a lot of audio recorded notes to myself as I go. Um, I, I try to create as much you know primary source data as possible. And then the interviews I conducted with other people, it, it just turns entirely into like um, you know like a script where it just tells what the different people said, who witnessed other things. Before uh, we but, get into that, and, yeah. and and I apologize to cut you off, could you just kind of explain why were there a ton of uh, Trump supporters at the Capitol that day? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's I wouldn't even think to ask that. Yeah, set the stage for the audience who isn't a political nerd like me. Yeah. Okay, yeah, great. All right, so this would have been after the election 
between Trump and Biden. So Trump has been president for four years. There's an election between Trump and Biden. The election results come out. And, you know, I thought there might be political violence on the street that night uh, if we got just the right result. So I was in Washington, D.C., and I stayed out till like four in the morning or so trying to guess where, you know, if something were going to happen, where would it be? But I guessed wrong. I, I uh, But so I, I wasn't really with the crowd when what turned out to be the pivotal moment happened is on election night, Trump goes on TV and announces the election results are a fraud. He rejects the election results. The, pre- the sitting president of the United States goes on live national television and says that really, and again, I have to be so careful now because there, there's a lot of very angry people on either side. There's, And I have some sympathy for the Trump supporters. I really do. There's certain things that I agree with them on. I agree with them about how much the Democrats suck. So th- I, I know that I'm in danger of mischaracterizing exactly what Trump said. But he essentially said they stole the election from me, or he at least said these are not legitimate election results. Like, I don't know, maybe that's the best way of maybe the most generous way of looking at what Trump said is like he said, well, maybe I lost, but we can't tell because these election results aren't legitimate. Um, And that's really inflammatory. That's like through the looking glass, parallel reality kind of stuff. Like, I did not think the world worked that way. I did not think presidents of the United States said stuff like that. Um, So that's election night. But, you know, as a social studies teacher can tell you, you know, in our American system, the president doesn't, you know, assume power on election night. There's a gap, you know, before it officially is certified and then the new president's sworn in. So in that gap period, uh, sometimes called the lame duck period, um, but you know that, that doesn't mean what it used to. Anyway, in that gap period, after the election, but before Biden is sworn in, it is extremely tense. And I have been going to every rally, listening to every person uh, speak. I have seen Trump's standard, well, I've seen Trump speak many times by now. He's fascinating. I almost said his standard stump speech, but he doesn't have a standard stump speech. It's different every time, which is unusual. Um, But I'm very familiar with seeing him speak to his crowds. Uh, And then so now on this day, January 6th, that is the day when Congress is actually making it official. They officially are supposed to certify the election results at that time. Uh, And this is what at least all of Trump supporters have been waiting for. They're sure there's some sort of plan. And uh, this is more of just teasing a subject you could get better from other people. But there's a very fascinating Internet entity that calls itself Q um, that is, you know, incredibly popular with the people in these crowds. Many of them. This I can attest as a firsthand primary source witness. Many people attending the rallies believe Q is Trump's alter ego. They think it's really him. And they think that like he goes up and says a speech to them in public and then Q says all the things he can't really say to them. So this Q person is extremely influential. Uh, There's a couple of great documentaries about that. I 
I am not an expert on the internet side of things. All I can tell you is the types of things people in crowds would say to me about you. That's the extent of my understanding of it, but it's, it's culturally influential at least. Um, and some internet forums, again, this is, there's other experts who can tell you better than this, whether this is an officially Q idea or whether it's just the type of idea people said on Q forums and when they were commenting on things Q had said uh, is that they maybe should just push their way into the building. Whoa. Yeah. I did talk to a guy because I went to see Trump speak that day. And as he's talking to a huge crowd, I'm interviewing people in the crowd. And before anything even happened, I do interview this older guy, he, you know, it's in the book, the full interview is in the book, where he's saying that, like, if they don't just push their way into the building, it will all have been for nothing. And I kind of treat it like a joke. I'm like, but but if if people pushed their way into the building, wouldn't the, you know, police and security inside try to stop them? Wouldn't people get hurt or killed? You know, like it seemed ridiculous to me, but then an hour later it happened. And, I, and like my mindset when that's happening, by the way, is absolutely like, I'm just falling to, I'm, you know, like through the looking glass, Alice in Wonderland, like, you know, this guy was right. I thought he was a joke, but then they did it. So like, what else am I wrong about? You know, but so, so that was, that was definitely a thing, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, so I, one important thing that I think to understand is that when Trump is speaking to his crowd, he has this tendency to get carried away by the sound of his own voice. And if you've ever listened to Donald Trump speak for even 60 seconds straight, and many people haven't, many people know him entirely from like two second clips that are muted. Um, but if you actually listen to him speak, it is somehow hypnotic. There's something he's very good at when he's performing for a crowd. It's, it's hard to put your thumb on what it is. Um, and he kind of seems to lose track of time when he's doing this. So the people in the crowd, they're checking their smartphones. They're, I'm guessing, messaging each other. They're becoming restless. And because it's too late, Congress is starting their vote on certifying the election. And that's what they came to do. They want to get to that building where Congress is. And again, now switching modes. I'm not speculating. I, when I say these things, I'm just paraphrasing things four or five people said to me in you know conversations that I documented. You know, the crowd were saying they wanted to get over there because the Capitol was the Congress was certifying the vote and they were going to do something. So they were maybe a little vague on what the details were. I got different things from different people, but that's where they needed to be. They had to get there and do something. There's all these conversations happening about that, but they're not over there. They're listening to Trump speak and the crowd turned on him, not I don't want to oversell that, but parts of the crowd turned on him. People started shouting, lead the march. You know, they started like they were mad at him. They didn't, they, which I'd never seen him lose control of a crowd before. He was such a very good with a crowd, but they were impatient, you know, because they wanted to get to the Capitol building and a lot of people left. They turned their back on Trump when he's in the middle of a speech and they left early. 
and they marched down the, the few blocks from where he was speaking to the Capitol building without it. And those are the people who start fighting with the cops and end up breaking into the building. So that's, I think... Real quick, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. This is... Yeah. I've never heard this side of the story. This is... And it's credible because you were there. Holy mm-hmm. shit. So what I thought was that the opposite was that Trump was saying, essentially... We got to get to the Capitol. You know, essentially Trump was egging them on. But what you're saying is they were like, hey, man, Trump, why don't you lead the march? Because we want to go to the Capitol. So they wanted to go to the Capitol more so than Trump. I, I, I would agree with that. Now, I can I can really get into the weeds on that one, because one of my like catchphrases that I actually hope I can maybe mount on my hat someday <laughs> is accuracy matters. So let me try to be as accurate as I can. And that, you know, it might trigger the left-leaning people a little bit because it might come off as if I'm defending Trump. But if, um, Trump, because I stayed and listened to the whole speech. I took notes as he was speaking. And as a result of that, I missed some of the really good, juicy historical events was the actual start of the violence on January 6th because I was over listening to Trump speak while the violence was breaking out away from Trump. But Trump, if you listen to the words of his speech, he clearly said, when I'm done speaking, I am going to lead you down. We're going to, I, well, I, he, he seemed to say it, I, which I respected the hell out of because politicians rarely actually walk with their crowds. It's like a security risk. But he gave the impression that he was going to lead the march himself. And then when I look back at my notes and recordings later, it looked like maybe he was saying, you go march without me and I'll meet you there. But either way, that, that that's the impression the crowd was getting, that we are going to march down together and we are going to peacefully protest. And that does seem to be like if you're just reading a transcript of Trump's speech, that does seem to be the message. He was saying, I'm going to go inside and negotiate with them or and you're going to be out here protesting and you're going to give me leverage and show how much we want this or maybe something else. Maybe I'm going to be standing outside there. It's. It, it, this, it's, he did say, like, peacefully protest multiple times. Like, there's no moment in which he called on the crowd to go commit acts of violence. That's just not true. And that's one of the things that really annoys me about the mainstream news media so much is Trump has done so many legitimately terrible things. Why do they got to make up something that he didn't do? It just makes the whole thing look less credible. You know, just stick with the provable things like to that point. In the speech, he also says really inflammatory things. He keeps doubling down on the idea that this is a stolen election. And he very much gives the impression that this is proven. Again, we're talking about how important it is to talk about your degree of of proof, your degree of confidence. He keeps giving these hard numbers, you know, like 6,000 dead people voted in Michigan, 8,201, you know, people who don't live in Ohio voted in Ohio. He goes on for like an 
power, listing number after number. It sounds very convincing, but I do not recall at any point having listened to the whole speech, him explaining a source, like saying where the numbers come from, like according to this study. He seemed to just be maybe making things up or quoting things on Twitter. It's not clear. So like that's that's horribly you know, inflammatory and irresponsible. And, you know, but that's what he did. He didn't say, go get him. You know, like uh, people make this argument that like Trump had like this master plan thinking three steps ahead to like get people to break into the Capitol building while maintaining plausible deniability. Like, I, I guess that could be, but that, it, I mean, that doesn't fit. Like the way I put it in the book is like, for that to be true, you have to believe he's smart enough to plan January 6th, but also dumb enough to plan January 6th because it didn't help him. Like he wasn't better off after that happened, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So he's he's giving this speech that runs way too long that people are frustrated and they get sick of listening to. And I just heard a beep on my computer. Can you still hear me? Did, did oh, something yeah, cut out? Okay. No, you're good. Okay. And so then um, the crowd leaves without him. And as I'm walking, this is, I found one of the most interesting chapters because I also, I try to capture what it felt like to be in a place, like what you would actually feel walking down there. And so my just read of the mood and my emotions at this time, I do think are of interest to like a, like a history student trying to make it into a real thing, trying to compare it to their real life. And so I eventually, the speech ends and I walk leisurely down looking for interesting people to interview. It's actually hilarious now in like a kind of meta way because the whole chapter, I'm like searching for something interesting and they've already started breaking into the Capitol. <laughs> and it takes a little while for me to figure out I should run over there because that's where the story is. But I was re I'm reminiscing about like the great political marches in Washington, D.C. while this is going on. Like I was there to protest the Iraq war. I threw myself against police shields to protest the Iraq war while marching down these same streets to the same building. Like I'm reminiscing about these memories and I'm thinking, like, is it is it really that different? Is this is this one of these things that's happening right now? You know, is this going to be a. Like, should the Trump people win and they get to write history, would would that be how this is remembered? You know, and I don't know they're broken into the building yet, which does not typically happen at a peaceful protest. But, you know, like that is, I think, how a lot of them saw it. I think a lot of these people were people who had not been to a protest before. You know, they were not the type of people who usually did this, but they do have the image, most of us do, of like Martin Luther King leading a giant march through these same streets and then giving a big important speech. And like, that's what history looks like. Most people have some image of that. You know, I think they kind of thought that they were participating in history like that. And then there's a very sudden turning point, I noticed, where people start sh checking their phones and shouting out, Pence has betrayed us. Whoa. Because, and if I'd set this story up, I would have foreshadowed it a little better. Because in Trump's speech, he is saying, so he says specifically, like, you know, Pence 
I'm counting on you to do the right thing. I've heard very bad things, but you know, uh, but you know, I'm hoping you'll do the right thing. And again, paraphrasing, you know, don't sue me if I've got the exact wording wrong. But he mentions Pence. He clearly wants some sort of favor from Pence. He's not specifically stating what it was. What do you but think there, it was? Like, what, oh, what, I, what I, could, I know. What could Pence have done? I know exactly what it was. It, it, like, it depends on how deep in the weeds you want to get into this, which ventures somewhat outside my area of expertise. But to the extent, because it's very dangerous trying to reconstruct what might have been going on in Donald Trump's head. Like, <laughs> he's one of the hardest men I've ever found to understand. Like, I can, I've studied politicians and historical figures most of my life, most of my adult life, at least, and since I was a teenager, I don't ever know what Trump's going to do. Most of them, I, I can predict what they do after studying them a lot of the time. Trump, it's it's so weird, you know? Um, so when I'm ever trying to explain what he was thinking, it's it's dangerous. But, you know, if I were to take my best stab, he seems to have this idea that developed over the course of that, that gap period, that there's certain states where the election results are contested and that they elected multiple sets of electors. And that gives him some sort of opening to say the election results are illegitimate and they need to be investigated further or something. But again, I'm speculating here. I'm outside of my area of expertise he was vague, but I can say with expertise what the people in the crowd thought was going to happen. I talked to them and a lot of them had, they did, they tended to not have a single plan. Different people would tell me different things, but I noticed they would quote some specific statute and say, Trump is going to invoke this and mm -hmm. declare a state of emergency. And then we're going to have like a bipartisan commission composed of like two Supreme Court justices and two of this. Like, again, I wrote these things down. The exact details will be in the book. Um, and then they're going to investigate the election and see what really happened. A lot of the people in the crowd seem to have some sense of that. Like, I do think the media overplays their hand when they indicate that the people in the crowd thought that they were going to directly make Donald Trump president. I don't think that's how they described it when I asked them. And I did. Like I asked, like, what, what is the plan here? A lot of them had some idea that there was going to be some sort of commission to find out what really happened. But there wasn't enough time before certifying the election. So they had to delay the certification. That was often the line. Which is not to say that that's at all what really would have happened or at all what Trump actually would have done. But the types of people who were there when the Capitol was being broken into, that's the type of thing they told me. Holy shit. So, okay. So everybody there, it seemed like I'm here to listen to Trump, mm -hmm. but I am expecting him to announce his grand plan. Exactly. To, yes. To a um, a go to the Capitol and enact his plan to take his rightful spot back as president of the United States. Something like that. Although, again, I, in fairness to Trump and these people, I think if you got one of the guys I interviewed sitting here, he would have said 
it wasn't about Trump taking back his rightful spot. It was about admitting that the election was rigged and there was all kinds of shenanigans and we needed to investigate it to find out what really happened because right now we don't know. I think that that's, if nothing else, that makes it sound a little more reasonable. That's the type of thing one might tell themselves. And I think it's a little easier to sell it to the crowd. But the point you absolutely nail is there was a very clear sense amongst the people I talked to that they had showed up to hear the speech. And in the speech, they were going to hear the plan. The plan. They were going to be told what we're going to do. You know, they were ready to do anything. They're like, okay, I've heard this idea about Storm in the Capitol. If he asked me to do that, I'm down for that. You know, I've heard other ideas. If he asked me to do this other thing, I'll do this other thing, whatever it is. But we got to do something. I'm going to wait for Trump. He's going to tell me the plan and I'm going to go from there. That was the mood. And then Trump never said anything exciting. So they left without him and they fell back. I think I think again, this is this is inductive reasoning based on action, based on data points of interviewing multiple people and getting a sense of it. But, you know, I can't prove this, but it's as good as you can get. I think they were waiting for Trump to tell them what the plan was. And then when he didn't deliver the goods and time was running out, they just kind of fell back on some of the things they'd read online that they had a vague sense of. I think there was a lot of people – this is jumping ahead to my conclusion because there are arguments to be made for like the nefarious actor. It's not completely crazy to, to indicate that there's some people who were kind of egging on the crowd who did have more of a plan. Uh, I can get into that later. But I think the mindset of most of the people there and most of the people who went in was, I have to do something. The president of the United States said the election was stolen. That's an emergency. You know, you don't just yeah. say that and forget about it. Like I, you know, as speaking as them, I, as a MAGA supporter, as a Trump supporter, I believe Trump. He is the president of the United States. He is the legal president of the United States. He said the election was stolen. I believe him. That's an emergency. I got to do something. And then he didn't clearly tell them what to do. And so like some asshole started breaking into the building and they're like, I remember reading about this online and they just kind of assumed someone somewhere had a plan. It's not necessarily clear that anyone did. Maybe. But it's not. I, I, I wasn't able to conclusively prove that. It well, could have just been stupidity. To, <laughs> to, to your point, I vaguely remember – um, that time between – so the election happens in November and then the president sworn in in January. Mm -hmm. um, I remember vaguely remember in that time just browsing the internet and reading people saying like, ha, 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 can't wait till y'all see the truth. Yeah, y'all really think Joe Biden's the president, huh? Wait till you see. Wait till yeah. you find out. And I'm like – I was just like, these guys are fucking idiots. Like what kind of shit is this? And to your point – Trump did nothing to put water on that fire at all. Definitely not. Definitely and, not. No. And at the end of the day, after January 6th, the whole thing was Trump incited violence. Right. And what you're saying is he never said, go there and break in. But right. he incited, he maybe, I, I, I don't know the legal definition, but for example, if I said on this podcast, hey guys, Ben has a billion dollars of gold in his basement right now. And then somebody came, killed you to look in your basement. Is that inciting violence? 
Well, you're going to, that's the kind of thing that politicians keep very careful track of. You know, they always have a lawyer on staff who will tell them what they should say and shouldn't say because it qualifies as this law and not this law. And I do, I do think not as a lawyer, I, I get the sense that, that the accusations against Trump were exaggerated and trumped up in, in a lot of sense because it makes it easier to charge him, you know, like um, it, it, it's less clear that, you know, negligence and stupidity is a crime. And if it is, it's less serious crime. I think that was one of the dumbest things they could have done, though. Like, I think they should have just been honest about what they did. I'm actually let me see if. Uh, uh, this is the conclusion chapter of my book, which in future editions, I'm actually just going to move to the very beginning because that's what people most want to hear. Uh, and then they can look at all of the details later. But this, I, I go over all of this is just after sifting through all the data, what do I think happened? What's my analysis? And what Before we get to that, could you just tell me, because I, I, what, what's so curious to me mm -hmm. is in, what type of person goes to the MAGA rally on January 6th and then storms the Capitol. So in your, since you got to interview these people, what type of people were these introverts, extroverts, military people? Did they, did they appear to like not have a good upbringing? Were they educated, uneducated? Mm -hmm. Because it, it just baffles me how someone could think to do this. So what type of human being was present that day? Okay. that That's, that's that's a good question. And um, that's just thinking back on all of the different MAGA rallies I went through in that like multi-week period. I will say, first of all, they're a diverse lot mm -hmm. and um, much more diverse than they're portrayed in the media. That was one of my first takeaways was seeing them for myself. I was like, you know, this is not what the TV told me they were. Like, I, I will always say, just in the spirit of accuracy, every event I went to, there were there were a few black people, you know, not a majority, but like there were always some, you know, black MAGA people. Um, there was a number of, you know, highly educated people. I, I met a lot of bankers. Um, yeah. Um, you, you know, um, just I saw a lot. This is one of those things I'm never able to investigate. Like I say, I'm chasing history. There's always like five or six things that I'm like, I could chase that, but I can't chase this other one. There were buses full of Koreans at every event. Oh. Like, yeah, they were like the children of uh, Vietnamese. I'm sorry, Vietnamese. Uh, they were the children of the refugees from the Vietnam War. And so they were flying the flag of the no longer existent South Korea. South, I keep doing that. South Vietnam, you know, the, the two Asian wars of a country split in half fighting communists. How could I get that mixed up? But um, yeah, so the they were flying the flag of South Vietnam, a country, a democratic country that was conquered by communists and no longer exists because the United States pulled out and stopped supporting them. And they were at every rally. And I started realizing that it was some of the same people, like they were doing the same thing I was. They were just driving around, going to multiple rallies on a tour. And they had these buses, these giant, you know, city the um, tourist buses. And nobody I was able to talk to knew who was paying for it. They were just these free buses that came into like Vietnamese communities and 
bust them all over. So there's some interesting story there. Uh, if anybody knows it, let me know. I'm curious. Uh, but so, you know, it was diverse. It, um, it was having, you know, said that, I think it's also we would be unfair to ignore that there were certain trends I noticed that while not true of everyone there were common enough to feel like it was a thing, which it was this weird, it was a weird set of beliefs, like believing obviously to me crazy things. But then again, like I said, when like I thought it was crazy that people would break into the Capitol and they did, it made me wonder, was I the crazy one? Should I have been listening to these people more? But like, so I would talk to people who would passionately believe, for example, that uh, John McCain had been the leader of Al-Qaeda and he was actually dead because he was executed by the United States for treason. And they would passionately believe something like that. And I'd, I'd try to like history teacher it out. Like, what's your source? Where did you get that? And that would seem like a foreign concept that'd be like, I'd be like, why do you believe that? Cause it's true. <laughs> you know, like that was like the, the conversation would go in loops like that. And I'd try to think of different ways to phrase it, to like get what I wanted. I was like, okay, but you weren't born believing this. Can you remember the moment you began believing it? Like what, you know, and like, I, it was very hard to get them to like, say where they'd heard something, where they'd read something. And so now drawing the line between primary source and speculation, I came to believe that a lot of it was coming from Q or from similar sorts of copycat internet, you know, personalities who tell, because the, the original idea behind Q is that they were claiming to be some sort of inside government source who was leaking classified documents. You know? mm. And so they say, hey, I got an inside on a secret that no one else knows, but you can know it, I'll tell you. And there's a number of internet personalities doing that sort of thing. It's very popular. And actually... This ties back to what I was saying way back to the beginning about like the click economy. Like you can make money just by doing something that gets people to click and share. You know, you don't need to care what happens after that. I think that's part of the reason this became so popular because that turns out to be something else people like to click and share. They like to click and share if they've discovered a really cool secret that no one else knows. And now they feel cool for knowing it. Uh, and then it also plays on their anger at things. Those are just the kinds of things that the internet organically supports. And I think that's part of what was happening. But it, so like, uh, there was all kinds of ones and, and like it went in cycles. What was fascinating to me, like there was lots of people, a uh, child rape was very big. There was like a, a child rape. Oh yeah. They love talking about child rapists. They believe that there are satanic child rapists everywhere yeah everywhere almost everything leads back to that and you know like the thing is though like again like there's always a kernel of truth that they start from like you remember jeffrey epstein you know like he the most generous way to say it is he had underaged prostitutes so yeah it's technically child rape um and there were a lot of rich and powerful people who probably did commit that you know, and so like that, but they would seize on and, and a lot of these people who have been saying theories like this, they've been saying it for years before the story broke. And then the Epstein story broke and they're like, see, I was right. I was saying something vaguely like that. 
you know? Um, so, I mean, I kind of want to give them their due. Not every single thing they say is automatically wrong. Often they'll kind of, kind of way out of the weeds here. That's kind of how I would describe Alex Jones. Uh, mm. Like he does say a lot of insightful, correct things. And then he mixes in some crazy and hopes nobody notices. And that's a very popular combination apparently. But, and again, that is the kind of person who'd be influential on these people. Like Alex Jones and Q had some kind of relationship. Like there's, there's a, like shortly after January 6th. And again, I, I don't know as much about the media analysis as I wish I did, but I do remember personally watching this clip from, from Alex Jones, where he's like, kind of like telling off Q. Like he's got somebody on the phone with like, you know, an obscured face that is apparently Q. And Alex Jones is yelling at him saying like, I'm sick of you. I'm not going to work with you anymore. You know? Um, so it's like, here's, a, I think, one thing to understand about the MAGA people, getting back to your original question, is they're influenced by a set of media leaders who are different than the ones we're even aware of. Like there are traditional TV, there's vaguely we're aware of people like Alex Jones who do something like traditional TV, but through other, you know, distribution and then there's these characters like Q, and again, I don't want to overstate that. They're just people like that. It's a good example. Mm -hmm. Who have similar followings as Alex Jones. They're kind of competing for the same audience, but they're a new kind of star. They're like this social media star that bubbled up organically through the internet, but they there have the same level of influence. And so there's the people at the, at the MAGA rallies, to the extent that they have anything in common, it's that. It's that they have a huge amount of their input, their influence, their belief system. They're getting from these internet forums and social media influencers who I'm not even aware of, but who have 20, 30, 40 million followers, you know? Um, and I, so that's, I think, the best way I could answer your question about yeah, what that, the MAGA people had in common. That. That's incredible. I think it to me it just felt like uh, just just a bunch of people who had maybe poor judgment. It's like why well, listen, we n not everybody's a leader, okay? Most of us are followers, but why do you choose to follow these crazy fucks, man? These people are crazy as shit. Um but okay, so you're at the Trump rally, Trump's doing his thing, people start to get restless. Yes. Um they're like, "Hey, man, what about what about the Capitol? You know, what about the Capitol?" They start to leave the rally, head towards the Capitol. And, yes. And, and, and then what, what happens next? What do you see next? Okay, great. So I'm marching down. And at first, my vibe reminds me very much of when I was protesting the Iraq war. There's people marching down the street. They're waving flags. There's maybe a sense of, like, happiness for, like, being part of a good cause. You know, I definitely felt that that sense, that belief that – that we are the heroes of this story, you know, like I'm honestly, I, I, I was jealous of them. I missed that because I used to feel that way about the Democrats. And then I got cynical and I, I don't ever get to feel that way anymore, but the sense of being part of something, you know, and then there's a turning point where people start shouting Pence betrayed us. Trump was apparently one of the things apparently he was trying to do was hoping that he's his speech and the crowd would influence Pence's decision uh, in terms of uh, certifying the election. Now, this is something that you could maybe get a panel of lawyers to argue passionately back and forth, but there was a belief in the crowd, at least, that Pence had some sort of ability to stop what was happening. 
to like give them what they wanted, you know, get that commission who was going to investigate this, don't certify this, this certain dirty election, you know, be brave and do the other thing. Mm -hmm. And then he didn't. And so they're really mad at Pence. And I think there was, there were, at least in the people around me that I saw, there was a, there was a realization that the people that they were mad at, Pence and Congress, were already in the building they were marching towards. Uh, so, like, this anger had a very easy focal point. They're like, something bad happened. He's right there! You know, like, they're all, and, and no one is leading the march. This is one of these details that I think is important, that maybe only someone with my particular life experience would think was important. But, like, I, there were no porta potties. Like, I, I've been to multiple marches in Washington, D.C., and when there's millions of people, you just set up that infrastructure everywhere, you know? And there was nothing, no planning. In, I, I noticed that at a moment, and I wrote it down. It's like, it sounds silly, but, like, it was a pathetic excuse for a march. There was no one leading the march. It wasn't planned in any way. Like, if any, like to me, as not a lawyer, this, this seems like the crime that is most easily to pin is criminal negligence. Because this is an obviously dangerous situation, a crowd of, you know, the whole crowd, I, I would argue, I think was in the millions. Not all of them broke into the building, obviously. But I've been very, very um, skeptical of the uh, uh, the estimates of how many people were there in total in the city that day. I think it was a huge, huge crowd. And they're all walking down the streets and no one's in charge at a typical protest march there's someone with a clipboard and a bullhorn telling people where to start telling people where to stop checking their permit see where they have a permit to march see where they don't this march my understanding is they did acquire a permit but that there's no one with the bullhorn and the clipboard no one's in control and they're already angry and so they bump up against the police and this next part i had to recreate using multiple different uh witness interviews over the next few days but what i seem to have seen happen is it's it sort of in fits and starts there's like the people who are actually bunched up against the police and the people a couple of like rows behind them are shouting break down the barrier you know like people behind them are egging them on so like they they go and i talk to people who did that and so like the people in front of them kind of respond to the peer pressure from the people behind them and they start breaking down the barriers and there's some violence with the police does break out. But the police, and this is important, are pathetically understaffed. Pathetically. I, I documented this in the sources of my book. The, uh, the National Guard offered reinforcements to the mayor of Washington, D.C. the night before the event. And she made a big show. She published a public letter saying that, you know, we don't support the police state and we don't need, you know, these more people taking away our freedoms. Because remember, the police were very unpopular at this time. Like sure. the politicians are very on board with the, the anti-police message. It's it's catchy at the, at the moment. And, you know, the reasons for that, that's what my other book's about. But that's just the environment you're in. So the, there were very few police officers. They were under orders. Again, I document this in the book. I got, you know, AP articles. They were under orders not to open fire on the crowd. So that wasn't even an option. Um, they had a few bits of like tear gas, but they fire off pretty quickly, but then they run out and the tear gas has just made the crowd angry. Like a lot of people in the crowd, you know, who are 
you know, 10 rows back, they didn't even see any punching or kicking. They're just like, the police attacked us. You know, now they're really mad and they think they're the, the, the aggrieved ones. You know, this is based on the witness testimony. That's what I'm told happened. And so very quickly, they just shoved the police out of the way. Like, what are the police going to do? They're like, it's so unbelievably outnumbered, like a thousand to one, you know. And they have some vague idea, the crowd, that breaking into the building is the thing to do. They do remember that being a plan, but no one I talked to had any idea what was supposed to happen after that. You know, so they they break into the building. I'm actually at a certain point, I become aware of what's happening and I do run as fast as I can over there to document what's happening. And uh, it comes kind of in waves. So when I get there, People are just, it's almost like a beach party, you know, that nobody's fighting in that area that I'm in. Maybe there was some going on inside the building, um, but nobody's fighting in that area I in. I, I mean, I see people in silly costumes. There's like a Roman emperor. Like, yeah, yeah, which to me is just like so perfectly on theme because I'm always talking about the Romans. And I get multiple pictures again in the book, which I, I don't know, maybe I should like focus on that picture. Maybe I could have like an award for that or something. But like there's a Roman emperor looking down over the crowd as, as they've been storming the Capitol building. And there's other people in other silly costumes. Um, and like they're happy. Their kind of sense is, okay, we did it, you know? And like at a certain point, there's people do start sweeping in again. It's very, uh, it's like water. It's like the crowd flows like water and you just pull the plug. And there's like a, there's a broken window, which is interesting because the doors were open in some areas, but there's a broken window with no glass in there. And people just start jumping in through that window and piling in through the door. And I'm in the crowd that's rushing towards the window. You know, I feel the draw in there. I'm almost kind of caught up in it. I'm like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to see this story firsthand. And at the last possible minute, I'm like, bad idea. And like, I jump out of the way and the rest of the crowd surges past me. So that's as far as I went. I didn't actually enter the building. But what I did do was interview people as they were leaving and ask what went around on inside. Uh, so that's, I think, the really exciting part of the day is I t the people were going in, and I think this is to the extent that I was able to capture some historically valuable documentation. It's hopefully the interviews I conducted of the people who'd broken in. When I asked them, what did you do when you were in there? You know, why did you do that? You know, like, I think that's something that history students might be interested to know, because I do, I do believe this will be studied 20, 30, 40 years from now. I do think it's one of those moments that, catches your attention, you know, that time a crowd of people broke into the Capitol building and chased Congress out of the building. Um, yeah. what, what, what did they say in, in those in those exit interviews? Did they feel, uh, mm -hmm. were they relieved? Like, hey, I completed my objective or what, what did they have to say? Yeah, well, for it was my conclusion. It was it, it was it took place in multiple locations over the course of several hours. And a lot of people had a lot of very different experiences, you know, so that's that's one of those things that I'm I'm critical of, like both the initial coverage of CNN and then this like counter narrative from Tucker Carlson, where they said it was this horrible world ending riot. And Tucker Carlson said, no, no, no nothing happened. It was all chill. And like both of those are cherry picking. 
violence. There were there were moments of calm and there were at least some moments of violence. I definitely talked to people who did both. So I interviewed people who one guy, he, he described it as playing football. And, you know, he looked like a football player. He looked like he played football in high school. So that was how he saw things. But I always said that there were like people lining up and like shoving the police backwards and that other people were the police were shoving back. And like he seemed to think this was a really important distinction. He was like, nobody was punching. Nobody was kicking. You know, like he seemed to think that mattered. Like, like that's where the line was, you know. You know, but then I talked to another guy who was like, oh, yeah, I punched him. I punched a lot of cops, you know, <laughs> you know, and then I, I talked to another guy who was like, oh, actually, no one was there. It was totally empty. I just I walked in. I decided to look at some of the statues. I'm glad I did it, you know, and like it was totally calm, you know, so there was definitely different experiences had by different people. Holy shit. So the one guy who was kind of like, hey, nobody's punching, nobody's doing he had a conscience. He knew, oh, we probably mm. just did something a little yeah. fucked up. Was that the norm? Like people kind of yes. realized? Yeah. Yes. So mo- most Absolutely. people realized. Yeah. That, well, that, that no, no. Up. What the norm was, was that cognitive dissonance, mm. that worry, like, wait, was that fucked up? You know, uh-oh. <laughs> because like when I first got there, people were so proud so proud. Like I could tell one important detail to understand is nobody's smartphones worked when this was happening. At the time, it was easy to assume that was because there was some sort of jammer. I later read an article claiming that just like the system was overwhelmed by too much use, but whatever. No one could check social media. So they were kind of cut off from the guidance that they might normally have been getting about like, what should they do? They were just winging it, you know? And I think that's really important, especially for these people who maybe they're not used to to being in that. Like, a little bit of a tangent. Like, the first guy I talked to, who he talked about, um, you know, battling the police, and he was really excited. I kept saying, well, what did you do when you were in there? And he responded by saying it was something like, well, we sat in the goddamn Nancy Pelosi seat. And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) You sat in Nancy Pelosi's seat. Um, so I, I okay. This was this was before the social before the, the smartphones went down. They went down at a certain point. Yeah. Um, but this is very early on. They were they were still up at that point. And um, and I said, "Oh, you sat in the seat." And it was like, "No, no, not me. Just, just one of us." I was like, "Oh, oh." But we we did it. And I was like, "Oh, so you saw that? You were there?" And he's like, "Like, no, no. It is. I, I saw it on Twitter." And I was like. And I was like, oh, it took me a while to tease that out. Like he, he, he felt like that was me. I did that, but it was just a picture he'd seen. And like the weird thing was like, he had done stuff. Like he was one of the people who personally broke through one of the doors, like him and one of his friends, some of his friends, they broke down the doors they pushed the police out of the way. And I eventually was able to figure out, okay, like as a historian's perspective, that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear what you saw on social media. You know, I want to hear what you actually did. Uh, But to his point of view, there wasn't a difference. Like the stuff that he saw on social media and the stuff he actually did, like he could barely separate that in their mind. And I know that might sound a little condescending, but I only bring it up because I did notice it in multiple people. 
again and again, I would ask, like, because my mission is to document firsthand eyewitness events. What did you do? What did you see? And again and again, people would tell me something that I would realize later they'd seen on social media. Like, it, it was just all cobbled together into one thing to a lot of them. And I think that's, that is, I think, an important thing to understand about the type of person who did this. Yeah, and I think uh, also too. No, no I, I've never heard anybody say that. I, I did not know that the cell phones were not working there. Right. Um, also, too, I remember whenever it happened. Um, yeah, listen, maybe I'm a dummy. In fact, I, <laughs> I'm not the smartest guy in the world. You're I, I had no clue or inclination. My first thought was not like, "Oh man, these guys are going to jail." I was kind of like, "Oh shit, that looks fun." <laughs> oh, you know, like, and I. I get that. Like I, I, I try to like freely explain, like, you know, and it, like part of what I do is to try and give someone a sense of what it felt like to actually be somewhere. There was a point when I got there where it, it felt kind of fun. Like at the very beginning, I was getting kind of a contact high. They were like, yeah, you know, everyone hates those corrupt politicians. Like you can relate to that. Right. You know, it's like that was one of the things I was saying, like, you know what, if I had been back at my Iraq war protests and people broke into the building. I would have gone like yeah, that's yeah. actually kind of cool. You know, at least at first, that was, that was the initial impression. You know, you, you find out more things as you go along, but I, I, I understood how they felt. Yeah. Yeah. Of course I, I didn't. And then later on, whenever it came out that, Oh yeah, we're, we're actually arresting these people. I was like, yeah, that actually kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah, guess. that makes, you know, like at, at the Iraq war protest, people got, it was, I always greatly regretted that I didn't, get protested get arrested there because there was an exact point that the police had set up they're like okay this wall if you cross that line we're gonna arrest you you know and there were like people who were like almost making a game out of it they like stood up on the wall like oh i'm here and then they would just drop down on the other side knowing the police were going to arrest them because that was kind of a badge of honor to them but like yeah like you get arrested at a certain point, you know, like, yeah, yeah. that's just, that's how it always works. But like a lot of them didn't see, and going back to your point about like the weird backtracking, like a lot of them didn't, they wanted to make the claim that they hadn't thought of that. You know, like I talked to this one guy who was like, yeah, I I called him my book. I I called him instant replay because I always give people, you know, other names. You know, his name was instant replay. He's like, yeah, I tried to break in through one door and I got pepper sprayed in the face and it was really painful. And I had to go down and and recover. You know, it took like five, ten minutes. And then I went back in another door, you know, (laughs) and like that guy at the end of it said, yeah, I don't I don't actually know if I'm allowed to be here or not. I'm not really sure. I'm like, are you fucking telling me you got tear gas to the face? And you also want to have like plausible deniability that, oh, I didn't know this was against the rules. You knew this was against the rules, you know, but a lot of them did have that attitude. This like to me, totally illogical, but they were kind of trying to talk themselves into it. Like after like an hour or two had gone by, they're like, oh, wait, do I need to make up an excuse for this? Like it was definitely and again, I'm generalizing, but many of them, it was fun at first. They were practicing how they were going to tell their grandkids about it. They were sure this was the greatest day in their life. And then at some point, the the phones go back on. Important part of the story, Trump eventually sends a message telling people to go home. And that is when most of them go home. They go home almost instantly. And you get this certain like weird buyer's remorse from the people I talked to like in the second half of the day after it was over, where they were starting to try and make it make sense in their mind. And they're like, what excuse can I 
makes stick here? What will fit? Yeah. And they're kind of trying out different stories like, oh, so many of them were trying to retroactively say, oh, I, I didn't even know I wasn't allowed to do that, you know, but like I was there. All right. There were there were broken windows that had alarms going off. Uh, there was, you know, pockets of tear gas popping up everywhere. You know, this is clearly not something you would do in any other building. Why would it be OK in a building that has Congress in it? Like, that's yeah. just it's not it's not plausible. But there are people who have that attitude. So one one of the big narratives or kind of takeaways that I've seen in the days after this was that some mm-hmm. people had um, zip ties or, mm. or, or bombs or, or they intended to hurt specific members of government. Did you see that or get an inkling of that? Or did you hear someone like, we're going to tie yeah. her up? Did you hear any of that? Okay. Let me answer in two ways. First answer, short answer is yes some, and I'll tell you about it. But the second thing is, you know, this is my principle, accuracy matters. Like it's not okay to just make up a lie that is maybe similar to what happened, but is a little better at, you know, having a headline and, you know, getting clicks and and shares like that, that is not acceptable. And like the zip tie guy, there's an excellent piece by Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, I believe, which I sourced in the book. That story's bullshit. Like that guy, even his own, when he was being charged, because he did break into the Capitol building, like he's a criminal, but he broke into the Capitol building and he found the zip ties in there already. The police had dropped them. So he just took them with him. Uh, He did not plan ahead to break in with that. And like, even like the lawyers who are charging him, like the, the actual people charged with making the case of why he's a criminal, they acknowledged that, that like the police dropped those and he just picked them up when he was inside. It doesn't prove like a a conspiracy that was pre-planned ahead of time. And that's important. It's important. Like it's when the media lies about things like that, it makes people not trust the other things they say that they're actually true. Cause again, he is a freaking criminal. He's not a good guy, but they, they lied about it. They exaggerated it best and made up things that are very misleading. And that erodes people's trust in the media. That's part of the reason I'm inspired to go try and look at things for myself as much as I can. And there's a few good examples of things like that, of things, famous things the media said that were lies. For example, another the, the other big one is there, um, there was a story that a police officer was beaten over the head with a fire extinguisher yeah. and fell into a coma and died the next day. And his, and again, I have all the news articles documenting this in the book. I did, I did my homework on these examples. Uh, his body lay in the state. Like the members of Congress had to walk past his dead body on the way to work for several days, like barbaric ritual when you think about it. Um, But the story was total bullshit. Like he died of a stroke the next day. In reality, he went home, said he told his family he loved them, slept in his own bed and died of a stroke the next day. So I'm sure the stress was somewhat related but you know the the cause of death was natural causes there were multiple investigations of his body there was no there was no proof of uh, like a blunt force trauma on his head no indication that that ever happened and then after that the media even tried to like salvage the story and they say okay to the extent that they talked about this at all 
they talked about the fire extinguisher guy and they said, well, we now think that he was pepper sprayed and had an allergic reaction to the pepper spray, you know, but they did a second like test and proved that wasn't true either. Like this came out very late in the process of me editing the book. I had to like go back and add like an author's note, like the results of the test came out. He definitely wasn't hit by pepper spray. So they were just kind of making things up. Like, think about that. Think like you took a dead body yeah. and you made the lawmakers walk past it and you didn't double check the cause of death. Like, what does that say about the, the, the competence or the honesty of the government that we live under? Like that's, that's staggering that there are these extremely misleading things floating around in the reporting on January 6th. That's part of the reason people are receptive to this, all of these counter-narrative conspiracy theories, like, oh, it was staged, it was an inside job, because there are these clear examples of someone lying about something. You know, I, I don't hold it against people too much if they believe things like that, because there the, there are these lies. But but you just said, think about it, the, that's the government, how, how, you know, they're so crazy, but isn't that the media spinning the story? How is it the government okay. that sp spun that story? I, I suppose you could be right. To, to, I kind of perhaps make the mistake I, I of know. just conflating them in my mind. They're at this point, you know, they're very clearly agenda driven, you know, but, yeah. um, you know, but yeah, the media, the government, they, they tend, whoever it is that you want to blame for that. Like, I mean, the plant, the idea to have a dead body there lying in state that members of Congress has to walk back, that requires government cooperation and like so like nobody in that program would be like hey let's do the lion state thing with the body nobody like called his family and like ask yeah. hey how'd he die like they just ran with it that's crazy to me like I, I can't decide if that means like stupidity or dishonesty you know just like oh i want to pretend that because that's here's the important reason that someone would have a motivation to lie about that type of thing let me frame it that it's a good question, by the way. Yeah. The is because, because he's the only one that you can claim the crowd killed. You, If you can claim that they killed at least this one guy, then they were a violent and murderous insurrection. As opposed to a bunch of idiots who are criminals, but, you know, didn't kill anybody. Uh, he, he He's very useful for the narrative. That's the very last chapter of my book is I call it chasing narratives is looking at the different ways people have tried to spin the story. And if you're one of those people who wants to use the, the violent insurrection narrative, because it's useful to whatever it is you want to do, you want the crowd to have killed someone. There were a few other people who died that day, but they were killed by the police. And there was uh, I think a heart attack or maybe I think there was someone who had like a heart attack and got trampled, but that was, that was it. Like the police shot someone and I'm not, complaining about that i'm amazed more people didn't get shot i mean they yeah. broke into the capitol building while congress was in session but narratively it, you want if you want to say this was a horrible emergency this justifies all these emergency measures in response you want to be able to say there were a murderous mob that killed people it's beneficial from that point of view and, and they didn't this is i don't this is just fucking mind-blowing how, uh, and I'm not your therapist, but how does this make you feel? Because, I mean, damn, like that, that you witnessed an event 
firsthand. Mm. Not only did you witness it, but you went there to document it. You mm. documented it firsthand. You witnessed it firsthand. It took turns that you didn't expect firsthand. And now afterwards, it's the biggest probably media story of the past four years. And all of the story, not all of them, but tons of stories that are coming out are complete bullshit. How yeah. does that make you feel? Well, I mean, I feel, you know, blessed by the history gods, definitely. You know, this is the kind of thing I created the Chasing History Project to do. You know, the, the, origi the idea originally came to me, I think, when there was the, the George Floyd protests. And half the media was describing them as mostly peaceful protests. And half the people were describing them as violent riots. And I was like, I wonder what it would look like if I was there. Like, I, I kind of want to just know for myself rather than having to trust either of these people because I don't trust either of them. And so, like, my that became my goal was to, like, see those types of events that the media might have arguing and differing opinions of later so I could have a firsthand perspective on it. And I just was I succeeded spectacularly, <laughs> you know, like it. it, it I'm, I'm quite happy with the way it worked out. That was what I was looking for, you know, I mean. Yeah. I just uh, people who are you off? oh I'm I, I I suspected that already I feel a little better now having proof uh you know I mean and sometimes like people a lot of people leave comments on my books saying that like oh that's bullshit nobody's that lucky but you know like remember I I followed Trump events around in a van for several months straight before this happened like I I, it, I that's why I called the project the chasing history project because it involves a lot of me you know calculating shit how far can I drive in one night you know like you, that something might happen there you know like I've, I've chased other ideas that didn't turn into books that I didn't get enough material for uh, but at this time it, it worked like I, I, I followed around for a few months stayed on it and eventually something really interesting did happen and I'm just I'm very grateful to the muse for that, you know, I, because that's that was my image. Let's write a book about that sort of thing. I didn't know exactly how it would play out, but I, I feel blessed. Yeah, that that's incredible. Uh, so to pivot to maybe some uh, fun stuff. <laughs> All right. So there, there's there's lots of rumors or whatever that there were agent provocateurs in the crowd. Ah, yes. And I, I think I, I think it's been proven uh or the the new york times reported that there were some fbi people in the crowd uh yes. posing as as others um I, I i don't know all the details but what do you get the vibe that maybe there were agent provocateurs is that even possible to detect uh you know what i did have a number of interesting little suspicious moments that i wrote down in my notes uh, throughout that day and the days afterward. So I definitely don't think it's crazy. Uh, I, I didn't personally get to a conclusive level of proof. I, I can tell you a few stories of the types of things I saw. I Likewise. definitely saw people in the crowd that were at times when the crowd was mostly just milling around, almost looked like somebody was going to pull out a cooler and crack open a beer. And there were some people who just started shouting, like, you know, I need the men to line up here. We're going to push back into the building. It only works if everybody like they were sort of like coaching the crowd. There were there were some people doing that. Uh, the one guy I saw doing that, the most interesting detail I could 
fine after reviewing my notes and things the next day is that he's wearing open-toed sandals. And I found that fascinating. I found myself thinking like, if I woke up in the morning thinking, I, an agent provocateur, am going to lead a mob of people into the Capitol building, I think I'd have put on a nice sturdy pair of shoes. It's a great point. I, yeah, I don't. So my best guess is that at least that, just a guess, is that at least that guy I saw was kind of rolling with things spontaneously. But that's not proof of that. And um, there were definitely some people who were quote-unquote instigators. That's a word that triggers people. Like, even when I, like, explain what I mean when I say that, they still respond back angrily, like, because people use that term. You know, but they were trying to, they were trying to instigate more violence, at least more physically shoving in, you know. Uh, it, it it doesn't mean that they were FBI agents or Antifa or the Proud Boys or any of the groups they are accused of being. But there was someone, may have just been a random guy not affiliated with anyone. There were some people there who thought it was, who were trying to convince the crowd to, to do things. I, I definitely did witness some of that. I'll say also that, like, um, this was the maybe the one group that I really told off. And then I should actually get back to it previous question of yours that I didn't fully answer. Um, th there were people just walking around. I believe they had a bullhorn. Bullhorns. A lot of bullhorns at events like this. And I was, was amazed that the police didn't have bullhorns. Like they might have, that might have made a difference right there. Like there was a moment where you, the QAnon shaman, the, the famous, you know, guy with the horns, who I did speak with very briefly. Holy shit. I did speak with that way. Yeah. Um, there's a moment documented, I didn't see this, by just the the news media where like a police officer asked him if he could borrow his bullhorn. So he could like tell the crowd to back off. And he was like, no, I'm not sharing my bullhorn with you. You know? So the police were very understaffed. Um, but I've got too many open loops now. I, I, I did notice people going around with a bullhorn saying after that woman died, Ashley Babbitt saying like, in case you were not aware, the police shot an unarmed woman inside there. You know, trying to get people more angry. They were just walking around to anyone they could, spreading that message. You know, and a lot, a lot of people thought she was 15 years old. It's kind of like that. Each the actual statistic was she was a 15 year veteran. Um, but like in the fog of war, that was you know I, I do remember that. Like news percolated from person to person. It was it was like um, osmosis. I would just hear people saying things like, hey, did you hear this? Hey, you know, it just kind of spread. And that was one of those things that they'd shot uh, a 15-year-old girl. That's what they were saying. And they, they, they wanted people to get mad. They were trying to get people mad. And so I talked to these people who seemed maybe a little more organized than the rest of the crowd, you know, small group, you know, and I was saying like, she did break into the Capitol building. Like, you were running around inside the Capitol building while Congress was in session. What did you expect? It's a miracle more people didn't get shot, you know? Um, and they just kind of scowled at me. But, like, I can even hear them in other interviews I conducted, like walking around the crowd, shouting these things, trying to get the crowd more angry. I don't know who they were. You know, to be honest, if I'd had to guess before that, I would have guessed that they were involved with the militia somehow. Like the militia seem to be the groups that most plausibly would have wanted this to happen. 
Um, but you know, if somebody says later, oh yeah, I know that person, they were an FBI informant. That's not crazy. I, I could find that possible. I think that, that that's a good point you just made that I never understood, which is I, I've heard people say, listen, this whole thing was orchestrated by, uh, the, the CIA or some government agency because they are scared of Trump and they want Trump out, but Trump was already out. He lost the election. So I, yes. I never knew like what, what would be the motivation of some government agency to coordinate it if they did. Yes. I, I completely agree with that. I think that's important. Like why would anyone want this to happen? Who did it really benefit? And, you know, if there was, if it didn't go according to plan and there was some other way it could have benefited someone, what was that plan? What was this supposed to do? You know? And I, I was never able to convincingly find anyone who seemed able to answer that. I, di- I talked to a lot of people who were like, we're going to get into the building. And then I talked to a lot of those people who had, they had almost this magical belief. Another set of guys I interviewed before right before it happened, like when people were marching down the street, maybe it had even already started at that point. And they were carrying like a giant flag, like they have at like football games at halftime. And uh, they said the same thing. We're going to push our way into the Capitol. And then the same thing the old man said, something to the effect of we're going to like force them to resign. And then another thing that people said to me multiple times uh, from multiple sources was just like our founding fathers did. Without a shot fired, a lot of which, you know, as a guy who loves the American Revolutionary War era, uh, like that's that's bonkers. <laughs> like so many shots were fired. But I talked to people who seem to think that the American Revolution involved peacefully pushing your way into the Capitol and forcing the government to resign. There was some sort of belief about that before it happened. And then after they really did push into the building and they got all the way to the floor where Congress had been, it only evacuated minutes before, um, they didn't really seem to know what to do next. I, I wasn't there for that. I'm just going on reports and videos I saw. But that's my interpretation of the best explanation you can find. This is the general conclusion I come to in the book. Actually, let me see if I can. Can I, re- can I find a section of the book and read it to you? Absolutely. Yes, that would, that would be fantastic. All right. Uh, So this is like basically my thesis. Uh, On the whole event, right? So this is your conclusion on the whole January 6th thing after Mm. being there in person, talking to all kinds of people, recording audio, video, documenting all kind of stuff. And and you've been following Trump rallies for months at this. Ah, here we go. Here we go. I I had this set up on my computer and it took me off. Okay. So this is the end of the book. Um, It says, so that's it. What really happened that day? Well, if you listen to the internet, internet, behind every corner, there's an evil genius who masterminded it. Trump, Antifa, the Proud Boys, the police. They're all brilliant strategists who knew exactly what would happen months in advance. But you should never bet on genius when stupidity explains just as well. When I look at this day, I see a stupid mayor who passed up federal reinforcements for cheap political points, a stupid president who told a crowd the election was stolen, then directed them to walk across the city with no recognizable supervision, a stupid crowd who believed getting inside the building 
would give them magic powers, but hadn't planned beyond that point, and stupid police who, despite some individual bravery, utterly failed to present a coordinated response to the obvious and predictable threats that they faced. Stupid at every level. A perfect storm of intersectional stupidity. Very, very well put. And I think that it's not a narrative you're going to hear at a lot of places because it doesn't right. really, it doesn't really serve any agenda. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't I, help. I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, it's Occam's razor. It's the simplest explanation. Yeah. And I, I will say a couple of things like first, like I said, like, you know, this idea that there was some sort of um, group that was coordinating it is, isn't totally crazy. In fact, that's, that's what the next paragraph is about. There were, there were some nefarious plots going on, I would suspect. There, you know, maybe the militias were doing something creepy. Maybe the FBI was something, something creepy. That's not a crazy thing to say, but those people didn't create the whole event. They just took advantage of it. Um, but the main thing was just these interlocking points of stupidity. You know, like, for example, the, in that city, because I stuck around a good few months to see all the aftermath. They put up like a giant metal fence around the whole building within 12 hours. It was very easy for them to assemble that fence. If they just put that up 12 hours earlier, I don't think anything else would have mattered. All these other things that we've discussed, you know, just a slightly stronger barrier around that place. I think that would have done it, you know. So, like, it is important to understand, oh, did people plan it ahead of time? Is it that kind of crime or is it a spontaneous crime? Sure, investigate that. That's important. And these people are criminals. They trespassed, you know, in, in, in the building where Congress was sitting. Like, that's obviously a crime. I'm, I don't like them. But if you just prepared a little better, if the preparation hadn't been so stupid, I don't think any of it would have happened. And I think here's an important thing is if you tell that truth, it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. It's embarrassing to admit that a mob of idiots were able to push their way into the congressional chambers and force Congress to flee, possibly for their lives. You know, at least that's how they felt. Because like, I, I absolutely sympathize with Congress being emotionally traumatized by this. They don't know what's going to happen if someone, the member of the crowd, caught up with them. I don't. The, the crowd didn't actually kill anyone. But like, if they'd wandered across Nancy Pelosi, just walking the halls, I'm not going to guarantee they wouldn't have killed her. That that doesn't, you know, so it's not crazy that Congress is just traumatized by this. But the fact remains, these were mostly like pathetic. Like these people, like they shouldn't have been able to do this. Yeah. It speaks to a level of incompetence in the government uh, that it's that it's embarrassing to admit. They would rather say, oh, it was a giant horrifying coup attempt because then it's more honorable to have been defeated them by them than to have been defeated by this rabble of morons yeah that that that's a great point you can tell you've really thought about this because i've i've never even heard this type of spin on it but it's it's actually very accurate i i like joe rogan's uh mm. analogy on this which is um these people who stormed the capitol were a bunch of fucking losers who lived in their mom's basement and jacked off 17 times a day they found some shit on the internet some guy named q had secrets and oh boy they were in on it and they needed something to believe in and they just, you know, they believed in it and they went to jail for it. Um, and it, it kind of coincides with what you're saying. It's a bunch of. It know, does to some extent. I, Joe Rogan is is a comedian uh, and yes. I, you know, he's the master of the craft. I, I, I love him. 
Uh, I, trying to view this as like a cynical history teacher who's gone insane, uh, I try to look at, at, at all the little nuances and details and things like that. Uh, but I don't think he's entirely wrong. There's, there's yeah, some element yeah. of that. He, yeah, there. he's he's riffing and and <laughs> yeah. I, that's what it feels like. Uh, but this is last question for okay. the night. You've you've been fantastic. Uh, <laughs> have some fun. Last question. Okay. So okay, hypothetical here. You can morph into one person. Okay. You have, you have five minutes to be within their their body on January sixth when all this shit is going on, and your only objective in this your mission for these five minutes is to stop the crowd from entering the Capitol. Who do you become? I'll go first because I, I, I have a, I have a curveball here. I would become Joe Biden. And in those five minutes, I would say, guys, I rigged the election. Donald Trump won. <laughs> oh, that would do it. That I would do it. It. Um, it. it would, yeah. it would fuck a lot of stuff, a lot of other stuff up, but that, it would definitely complete the objective. What about you? What, what would you do? Well, you, I, you mentioned this to me before the interview. That that's so easy. Is is Trump because Trump yeah. Trump is the one who pulled the plug on it in the end, you know. And the, uh, this is something that I go into in my book too. In, in in the conclusion, is like he told people to go home, and they did, you know. Like he was able to call them off. It's one of the things that I stress. Like it built this situation where there was no one leading the march, there was no organizer with the clipboard, you know, there was no one who could tell the crowd to stop. But there was one person because he did it like Donald Trump did tell them to stop. And then they did. So if you want to stop it, it's easy. I actually think that's, again, one of the things that's really important. And it really annoys me that like the Democrats messed this up. They tried to have to like accuse Trump of something that, you know, is much harder to prove, you know, saying, oh, you planned it all in advance. What you can prove is he could have stopped it anytime he wanted. And he let it run for several hours before he did that. So like he did, he did finally stop it, which, okay, some points, but once we've established you have the power to do that, why didn't you do it two hours ago? Like that's the most provable thing, in my opinion, that he clearly did do. Like knowing he could stop it, he chose not to for a while. Someone somewhere, I I would guess, had to talk him into it. That is a fucking good point, Ben. Dude, you should have been on TV immediately. I've never heard these angles. I've never heard someone speak on it um, in such a thought-out manner the way you are. Um, thank you. Goodness gracious. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. So where can people find you? I know you, uh, you have your book that is out right now, but where else yes. can people find you and the book? Sure. Uh, so I have a website, uh, chasinghistoryproject.com. You can purchase the book directly there. You can also sign up for the email list uh, as well. Then the book is available. You can theoretically order it from any bookstore or most any. It's on the Ingram Spark Network. So it won't be on the shelf. It's not, you know, a big deal, you know, yet, maybe someday. But if you walk up to the counter and tell them to order it, they can. And then, of course, it's on Amazon. It's got hardcover, paperback, and Kindle. And um, you, you can you can follow us on Twitter. I think I'm, I'm setting that up. Okay, cool. Just just e- email me your Twitter links. I have everything else. It'll all be in the show notes. Um, I just want to say, I think what makes you so credible in this is is not that you you had boots on the ground, which, by the way, it shouldn't be. It's the fact that you tell it how it is and you do not tow a party line. Because whenever people hear that, you talk negative about both parties, 
-hmm. it breaks people's whole mental model. And the fact that you do that gives you superpowers. And I ask that you never you. stop talking. Thank you.